Welcome everyone to Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came, a podcast where we discuss the characters, connections, and deeper meanings of Stephen King's magnum opus, The Dark Tower. I'm Jay Russo. And I'm Sean McGurr. You can find more information about the podcast at twoguystothedarktowercame.com. You can also email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. In this episode, we'll cover book two of The Dark Tower, The Drawing of the Three, the prisoner section. Let's start the show. Great. So we have a big section here, and let me just sort of summarize the plot as we like to do. A wounded and fevered Roland finds a door on the beach labeled the prisoner. Going through the door, Roland enters the mind of Eddie Dean, a heroin junkie who is smuggling cocaine into New York City in 1987. With Roland's help, Eddie is able to get through customs, but will he be so lucky facing off against the drug lord Enrico Balazar and his cronies? And will Roland survive his injuries? So much happening in this uh, section, Jay. 125 pages of goodness. Yeah, this is like some of the best stuff in the whole Dark Tower story. And it's all packed into this one section of the book. Fun times. So, you know, as we've advanced through the books, we're not going to spend quite as much time on plot because there's just so much happening. And, you know, I think it's a lot easier to digest. But we really want to get into some of the major themes and characterizations here. And I think one of the things that I wanted to call, and we talked a little bit about it on the last episode, was the evolution of King's writing style and how different book one and book two are. Um, And it really sort of plays out in this section, The Prisoner. Yeah. The Gunslinger stands apart from everything King's done, but just going from that book to this book and it's the same character, same story, it's just an incredible change. Yep. And we talked about this before, the sort of... Stephen King's style that we might be used to. And one of the things that is very noticeable in this, and part of it is not only because of King's writing style changing, but also because we're now in a world that we're familiar with, uh, 1987 New York City. I didn't grow up in New York City, but I am familiar with 1987. Fairly good. So um, (laughs) there's a lot of things that just sort of jumped out. I'm going to run through a couple of pop culture references, brand names that that King sort of litters the book with. So Levi's, The Exorcist, Charlie Brown and Lucy, TWA, Dwight Gooden, The Mets, WTBS, Delta, Miami Vice, David Lee Raw. Yeah. <laughs> um, Anison, Pepsi, Formica, Trivial Pursuit, Johnny Cash, Reese's Pieces, Doug Henning and David Copperfield, John Travolta and Rambo. But the thing that really makes you feel like you're in 1987 the stewardesses on the plane are smoking. (laughs) (laughs) I started reading that and I just sort of got, whoa, that's right. You used to be able to smoke on airplanes and even stewardesses could smoke. This is really the 80s. Yep. Yeah. Back when somehow there was a no smoking section in a sealed tube. (laughs) Yes. So the brand names of pop culture, it's sort of interesting because when I was young, Jay, I would read um, the Ian Fleming, James Bond books. And mm-hmm. Ian Fleming was sort of well-known as being one of the first writers to really drop a lot of brand names in his books. Um, oh. Unfortunately, as a American teenager in the 80s, 
the Ian Fleming brand names that were being dropped were high-end clothing and cigarette brands and alcohol brands and drinks that I had no- And like European brands too. Yeah, yeah so. exactly. They're all European. So I had no clue as to what was going on and no Google to check with that. However, when reading Stephen King, these things are all like, I could name every single one of those things. and like, oh yeah. And even the non-pop culture things that King does to make the world more realistic when he talks about like, UHF and VHF radio channels and you know what that means and you know you and I mm-hmm. are old you and I are old enough to remember what those TV channel UHF and VHF meant I was trying to explain it to my daughter and she was just totally like befuddled <laughs> as what are you talking about <laughs> like you you got to build up from the dials on the TV yeah. first <laughs> yeah all of this is to say that it is a different type of world building that King does using these pop culture references, the brand names, just sort of the ephemera of culture that we're used to. And it really makes the world seem lived in and real as opposed to just a story of a gunslinger in a different world. It's very much our world and we can sense that. Well, he's sort of using all the pop culture references as a as a shortcut to showing us a world that already exists. He doesn't need to build that world. It, it's there for us. Sure. And, and we know it. So Yeah, but it makes it more three-dimensional, I guess. It's not a flat sort of world is what I guess I'm saying. It's more of a, um, it's realistic to us. It's it, it, mm-hmm. it doesn't seem like a writer just putting words on the paper and, you know, a lesser writer might not give us those types of details and just tell the straight story of, of of a, of a fish out of water, but really sort of peppering that with us really makes us feel like, oh yeah, I know this. This is real to me. Yeah. Yep. Um, one of the other pieces that I noticed too that is a change from the last book is the shorter chapters. You know, mm-hmm. we're talking about a big section here, but sort of the the short chapters, Kurt Vonnegut like um, a much more conversational style. Um, those are fairly significant differences between book one and two. Although it's interesting with book one, if you read the revised version, what had been section breaks in the chapters in book one are now numbered in the revised edition to give a little bit of that. But it was notable to me that King didn't do it in his uh, original version of The Gunslinger. And then sort of the big piece that might be one of the reasons that readers who have potentially avoided the Dark Tower series in the past have an easier time with this book. In fact, I've seen some people suggest to readers to, you know, read the second book first and then go back to the first one because the second one could potentially be an easier read for you if you're not used to science fiction and fantasy, et cetera. Um, That there's a lot less of the mythos of the Dark Tower, especially in this section, right? We're very much in Eddie's story, in Roland's story, and there's so much action going on that while we get hints and pieces of Roland's past and the larger mythos of the Dark Tower, we're really focused on how is Eddie going to get through customs with these drugs on him? And then how is he going to escape from Balazar? It's more like a, a Monster of the Week episode of the X-Files where there's only one scene with the cigarette smoking man. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. There, there's a section um, that is a very brief mention talking about just like the the larger story arc that... King just like drops this info bomb on us almost in like one sentence where 
Roland is having this reflective moment and he says, with the simple resolve that had made him the last of them all, the last to continue marching on and on after Cuthbert and the others had died or given up, committed suicide or treachery, or simply recanted the whole idea of the tower. And it's like, okay, I guess that at some point between when Roland started his life as a gunslinger and now all of his closest friends, his fellow gunslingers, his comrades in arms, they all just went downhill fast and in terrible ways. They were, they committed treachery. They killed themselves or they just like gave up. And that's so unlike what we think of a gunslinger should be. It's not what Roland is like. Mm. And he's our only example. So it seems preposterous that another gunslinger would take these extreme measures or, or just give up rather than die in the heat of battle. Like that's sort of what I assumed and, right, you know, is their story, and that's all King says about that. These characters in this whole section of the book, and it's like he just painted himself into a corner narratively. Like now, these characters have to do that at some point. Yep. If we ever return to them, we need to hear about this treachery or these suicides. But as you were saying, there isn't a lot of that in this section of this book. But that one sentence gave us so much, and then he just. Goes on with like, oh, I'm drinking some Pepsi now, you know? Yeah, right. <laughs> it's true. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I think King does a good job of balancing in that in this section. I, you know, for those of you who like the mythos, you get those little hints of it along the way that keep you intrigued by it. But for those who want just sort of a rip-roaring yarn of gunfights and gangsters, you're getting that as well. Oh, absolutely. Um, and, yeah. and, and I don't think either one of them is overshadowed by the other, right? So it's not like the, the pieces of the mythos that he drops are done in such a short way that I don't think that people feel bogged down by it or like, what's going on? There's times in, in the first Dark Tower that people might have been like, who who are these people? and Why are these names being mentioned? I think that sentence you put, pointed out was a good example where it's enough to make you wonder like, oh, really? What happened to these people? How do I know about them without dropping? Yeah. Other, other than the name Cuthbert, which we've encountered before he doesn't get into a whole bunch of backstory and family trees and this happened in this situation at this fight in this time it's it's just enough to whet your appetite yep um and then the other thing about king's writing style that really might be the biggest change between book one and book two is the more developed secondary characters um and the fact that we see things from their perspective so in the gunslinger Literally the whole book, except for maybe one or two sentences and Allie's flashback, were all told from the gunslinger's perspective. I think there's one point where the gunslinger falls asleep and there's one sentence where Jake has woken up and looks and sees the gunslinger before he goes back to sleep. But in this book and in this section, we get a lot from... Eddie, obviously, but even the secondary character. So there's Jane, the stewardess. There's McDonald, who's the captain of the airplane that um, Eddie's flying on. And then there's right. the Andalini and Balazar and Simi and the other gangsters who we even get little bits and pieces of. And it's not just that we get to see things from their perspective, but King gives us enough details about some of these people that we feel like they're not a wooden stock cardboard character, right? Like, McDonald's the he's still somewhat stereotypical sort of the gruff captain who's in charge of his ship and make sure it's going to go his way but on the right. other hand there's 
Jane the stewardess, who we can say is, you know, a little bit younger, but she's sort of attentive, but not maybe as attentive as the other person because she's so nervous. And each of the gangsters has their own little, not only name to, you know, the big nose guy and the, the guy mm-hmm. who calls him the boss. And, you know, they all have their little quirks and things, but enough to even give a little bit of background for characters who we're not going to see again after this chapter, but are enough interest to make it seem like, again, this is a full world. Yeah, there the, some of these characters are really developed. Uh, I mean, it's not like King's got 10 or 20 pages on them, but I feel like I really got to know who Jack Andalini is. Like, yeah. There's enough time on his nature on just how when he, he kind of has this resting dullard face, but when he smiles or when he's angry, like something happens in his eyes and you realize how brilliant he is, but he's still the muscle. Yep. Right. And that's what makes him so dangerous is that he is extremely intelligent and he's, you know, a cold calculating killer. Mm-hmm. And it makes sense that somebody who needs somebody as his like right hand man in the mob organization where this guy operates, you want somebody like that to, to help run the show for you. And then Balazar too. Like we got to see some of his foibles and some of his weaknesses and how he builds these houses of cards and you know it's like and then these even little like hobbies and habits and like he goes I, you know there's one thing that he reaches in for his gun towards the end at the gun battle and mm-hmm. in his drawer you could see that there's like a child pornography magazine and his gun and some other things it's just those types of little details that really hey this is a bad guy. Um, yeah, but it's just sort of in there. And I mean, the man in black in the first book is not not even close, not even yeah. close. He's not built out at all. We tend to push stuff onto him because the few times we see him, we we build it up. But like, there's nothing I recall about Allie, right? Other mm-hmm. than she was nice to him in the in the town. And she had a scar on her face. Right. Yeah. And Brown was not really a, a, a character that was built out in any way. He was just a, a way for Roland to tell the story. But in this case, he, he was Roland's Wilson. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But in this, in this book, we get a lot more of that. And I think, again, that adds to the narrative, makes it an easier book to read and makes it more interesting overall. Hmm. I agree. So another thing that really kind of jumped out at me, and this is in part, I, I think, uh, it touches on the whole writing style thing is this idea of Roland's Greek chorus. And what stood out to me is that Roland is the first part of this section. And for a lot of the gunslinger, he's alone. And so King needs to find a way to have Roland, you know, give us some information, share his thoughts. And in this book, King changes things up a little bit and he starts to hear voices in his head he kind of has conversations with the man in black at times. And sometimes he has conversations with court. And uh, one time he has a, like a conversation with his father and all of these uh, authority figures or teachers or just people who had a really big influence on Roland's past, Roland's psyche, they, they appear in his mind as unique, separate voices. Mm. So it's kind of like a, a, something like a Greek chorus. Um, and then it it becomes really interesting how Roland has these voices in his head, and then he literally becomes a voice in Eddie's head. So it's almost like we've taken the concept and twisted it again, and now it's doing something totally new and different because he's talking to Eddie, and Eddie's not imagining this. But this was such a, an interesting way for King to do this, 
and it seemed to grow organically out of the story the first time I read through it that I had to wonder like, did King mean to do this? It's so clever. You know, was this intentional or did he realize like, ah, oh, this is pretty cool. I'm going to run with this and see see where it goes. So I don't know, what, what are your thoughts on that? Well, you and I had talked about how Roland's got this Greek chorus and, and he becomes a voice inside Eddie's head. And I decided, you know, as I was making notes, as I was doing my reread and thinking about this, I was like, yeah, this this is interesting. You know, it's not just that there's this mystical piece where Roland jumps into Eddie's head, but it all ties together. And when we talked about did King just sort of land on this or was it sort of a fluky? On this read, I realized it's not a fluke at all because it's not just Roland that this happens to. Um, yeah. Eddie also hears not only Roland's voice in his head, but he thinks back to when his older brother Henry has taught him lessons and the things he learned as his older, as a younger brother, you learn from your older brother. Some of those are good. Um, and then some of those are bad, like, hey, here's, in, in Eddie, here's how you shoot in, up. <laughs> yeah. yeah, in Eddie's case, some of them are really bad. Yeah. Um, so so Eddie gets that too. And again, to your point of it being an, an authority figure, your older brother is obviously along those lines. But it's not even mm-hmm. just these two main characters. Even Jane, the stewardess, when she is about, you know, when she's suspicious of Eddie on the plane and thinks he might be a terrorist, she thinks back to something that, her instructor in flight school had told her too, and she hears the instructor's voice inside her head. So I think that King really is playing with this whole idea of what do these voices in your head mean and what influence does the past have on you? What influence do authority figures have on you? Yeah. And I mean, he could have constructed that, especially with the with Jane in any number of ways. Like he could have extended her conversation with her fellow flight attendants and said, Hey, did you see the suspicious guy? You know, I think his eyes changed color. Let's, let's get him." you know, but instead it was like, you know, that flashback to the, you know, the instructor and it's literally the instructor's voice, not, you know, Jane remembering the, the instruction. And so it's an interesting mechanism. And I think it's another sign of, King's uh, prowess as as an author growing because he started doing this in the books that came before this. So like, I, I, sure. I don't remember examples, but I'm pretty sure this happened a lot in it. Yeah. And it happens in the stand too. I know characters in there hear their mother's voices or other folks' voices. So, you know, it Mm -hmm. is, it is a useful way when you're not just hearing your own voice and repeating yourself, but adding that to the earlier point of it being a conversational style, even if it's just one person having the conversation, they've just made up this other voice in their head or, or yeah. hearing these, what this person might say. Um, it's a good way to keep that up. And, you know, it's more of a way of, of, of getting those points across. Yeah. And kind of connected to this was that for the first time when I think it's either when Eddie sees Roland in the mirror or kind of this double take or when Eddie first steps through the door into Roland's world, it's the first time we see Roland from another character's eyes, right? Yep, Um, that's correct. So like we've had these weird omniscient uh, narrator moments at the end of The Gunslinger where we we get a description of Roland. Uh, But for the most part, since it's all from Roland's perspective, we don't have, uh, you know, a neutral perspective of what does this guy look like? What what's what's he doing with his 
body language and things like that. And so when when Eddie walks through the door and he says, "Man, this guy's dead," and no one to, you know, no, <laughs> no one remembered to tell him. Yep. But he still felt like he could still take him in a fight. You know, it's like it it gives you another reinforcement of just how much steel is baked into Roland as a as a character. Yeah, I get a much more of a sense of how dangerous Roland is in this section. Mm. You know, we've obviously seen him kill before and be a wizard with the guns. But when we see him and his actions through other people's eyes, um, Eddie, to your point, when Andalini ends up on the beach with him in Roland's world, and he's like, Mm -hmm. there's a ghost there, but you could still see like, oh my, when 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 he describes how Roland pulls his gun, with his left hand to shoot him and and he's just like oh my god he's so fast he's the fastest yeah. i don't have a chance i'm you know and he has a small chance because he the gun misfires because of the the water but like he's still like oh my god there's no way i could beat this guy mm-hmm. yeah i mean andalina's just doing all those calculations like yeah my assessment equals doom here yes, yes. it's good i i think that's the thing for me that adds to this book is just having more voices and more perspectives builds out the story and really builds out Roland as a character, even if it's in a not so nice way of like, Oh my God, I'm much more scared of Roland than I was. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, the title of this section is the prisoner and the character who is the prisoner is, is Eddie. And we haven't even really talked about Eddie yet. Right. So what are your thoughts on, on Eddie? Like, you know, there's a lot of magic and stuff that goes on around this. You know, the, the door itself is a pretty amazing thing that, that, that King establishes. Um, what kind of ideas did that uh, generate for you? Yeah. So, I, you know, reading through it this time, my big question was, um, we're told at the end of The Gunslinger that Roland has the power of the drawing and that he's going to be able to draw folks forward. And mm-hmm. so trying to think through the mechanics of this, I was wondering, where do these doors come from? Have they been put there by someone else or is it Roland and in Roland's power to do that? And why specifically Eddie? Um, And part of that is Roland's drawing the ability to to choose the person that he needs or is Roland's ability to bring forward into his world somebody else who has been chosen somewhere else? I don't think we have the answers to this at all, you know, to some extent, you you know, and I don't think the man in black had it in the last one. He did the tarot card and said, there'll be a prisoner. There'll be a uh, lady in the shadows and there'll be uh, death, but not for you, you know, all these things, but sort of why Eddie. And I think the reason it's Eddie and the first, why the first door leads to Eddie is a lot of, we see Roland getting what he needs when he needs it. Uh-huh. So we start we start this Such chapter as the with antibiotics. Rolling. Yeah, the antibiotics. And who better to find antibiotics than a junkie, except maybe a pharmacist or a doctor. But yeah. <laughs> but really your your first in your top three choices, I would think, if you want antibiotics, is heroin junkie, probably. And so that's one of the reasons he chooses Eddie. But I think there's a quote that you pulled out where is it Roland who says there's steel in him, but he's a weak vessel. Right. And early on in the chapter, when Roland first enters Eddie's mind space, he's on the airplane and he looks around. And one of the things that strikes Roland is just sort of how soft everyone is, right? Like there's just a bunch of businessmen and they seem to be wearing ties or cravats, but not like anything that would be worn in Roland's time. And they're wasting paper, which is just a total sin. 
in, mm-hmm. in, in Roland's world. And he looks around and he sees they've all gotten soft in some way. And, yeah. and Eddie hasn't gotten that way. He says in time he might have, but right now he's not. And so I think that that's one of the reasons that Eddie's the one who's drawn and why he's sort of the first person that, that Roland encounters here. That's interesting that Roland looks down on the soft citizens of, you know, 1980s America um, in such a way. But he he also looks down on like the the people of Tull, but not for the same reason. Mm. I think it's more of a class thing in that circumstance or a sophistication thing. But there's also this like purebred nature to like there's this this idea of like Roland comes from a line of of people that hasn't been touched by like radiation poisoning or or mutation or things like that like the the, the word threaded stock comes up yep. a lot like talking about livestock but also he uses it to refer to people and it's pretty clear that a lot of the people in tull are your average joes and they are not threaded stock humans right and they're not as bad as the slow mutants but they don't stand tall straight and healthy like roland does but maybe despite that inferiority he still recognizes that they have they're not soft right their lives are too hard for them to be soft. It's like, wow, everybody on this airplane is is healthy and has everything that, that they want. But if somebody tried to, to hurt them, none of them would know what to do with themselves. Yeah. But Eddie seems to be the one who stands out, at least of who Roland encounters thus far, right? Right. He sees a little bit in the stewardess. Like yep. he notices that the stewardess is observant and tough, but not like Eddie. And so to your point about the whole, the difference between Tall and, and 1980s America, this is from Roland's perspective, talking about Eddie. He was not soft and unobservant like the others, but in time he might be. And then we get into Roland's head. They are as they are because they live in the light, the gunslinger thought suddenly. That light of civilization you were taught to adore above all things. They live in a world which has not moved on. If this was what people became in such a world, Roland was not sure he didn't prefer the dark. Mm. That was before the world moved on, people said in his own world, and it was always said in tones of bereft sadness. But it was perhaps sadness without thought, without consideration. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes, Roland the deep thinker. Roland the deep thinker, yes, exactly. But, And I think part of that's due to probably the life that Roland's lived, you know, like if you've been a soldier or an army all your life, you tend to look down on on that he's sort of like maybe i don't want to live in the light if it's going to be like this i'd rather these aren't to your point threaded stock these aren't crew men these aren't men of my experience or my class so um it's interesting so i think that that's one of the reasons that sort of eddie comes where he comes from right he's to quote hamilton young scrappy and hungry he's ready to go he's yeah. got he's got this uh this steel in him and by the end of the chapter he's got nothing else right right his brother's gone. He doesn't have family. He's wanted by gangsters, even though they've probably all been killed at this point, but he doesn't know that. Um, he doesn't have a lot ahead of him. And then Roland's willing to take away the one thing that he has left, which is heroin, and just yep. say, nope, you don't need it anymore. It's got to be more than a coincidence, but do you think it's just maybe a plot contrivance on King's part that Roland meets Jake when Jake shows this promise, but King indicates that if Jake were allowed to continue living the life he was living, he was a tree that would bear sour fruit and mm. you know all that stuff. And then we've got Eddie, who at the time Roland meets him, is still in the prime of his life, still 
healthy and still has some steel in him, but he's also a junkie and he's also clearly on the road to a downward spiral here. Yep. Never mind the mob coming after him. I mean, he's going to kill himself with with heroin. So it's like Roland is, or the plot is stepping into these characters' lives before it's too late, but where you can already see the path that they're heading down yeah. isn't a good one. So it, is it to maybe make us feel a little less bad about them being yanked out of their, their own lives to join Roland's quest? I think that's legitimate. I think Roland might justify that to himself, right? Yeah. But by the time we get to the end, Roland realizes that, hey, I'm going to draw three people and they're going to join me on my quest. And there's no promises that any of them are going to survive. And I might have to sacrifice them like I did Jake. Yeah. And you know, maybe, hey, well, since they were going to die anyways or become bad people to begin with, then maybe it's all right that I did. So that's sort of Roland's way of justifying it, right? But it's interesting how he justifies it to Eddie, you know, because <laughs> they're, they're basically, they're what, they're in the bathroom or in the gangster's lair and the SWAT team's coming and the, they can hear the sirens and Roland realizes, hey, we're we got to get going. You got to make your decision. And Roland all of a sudden becomes, you know, I know I just spent a little bit of time ago saying what a horrible person Roland seemed to be and how scary he was. And all of a sudden he becomes this like romantic quests, adventures, towers, worlds to win. Like, what do you, and he's like, what are you trying to sell me? Like, he's like, well, on the way to the dark tower, anything is possible. And he's like, you forgot everything but the big breasted women, right? Hey, maybe we'll see them too. You never know. <laughs> and he's just, he just gets this smile on his face, even rolling. And it's just sort of like, ah, oh, well, whatever. Anything can happen. Like, this is going to be a great romantic quest. <laughs> yeah. It's going to be like the princess bride. We'll have a crew of people and we'll all have fun along the way. Yeah, and it it goes it goes from a massacre in a mob boss's hideout to like the end of a Benny Hill episode. <laughs> and he says, "Tell me what's on the other side of the door for me." Probably death, the gunslinger said, but before that happens, I don't think you'll be bored. I want you to join me on a quest. Of course, all will probably end in death, death for the four of us in a strange place, but if we should win through, Ah, yes, Eddie. If we went through, you'll see something beyond all your dreams. The Dark Tower. <laughs> it's there. And it works. Yeah. And he's like, all right, I'll give up the heroin. <laughs> I'll do it. It wasn't like he had a lot of time to think about it or many options, but yeah. Or any clothes. I mean, I know we don't have a lot of time to talk plot stuff, but that shootout's great, right? Like, Yeah. Like, it's all slow motion, so you get a good sense of what's happening and different people entering and leaving and just the visual of, like, the sick and dying wounded Roland making these shots, like, over Eddie's shoulder on the last guy and doing all the calculations in his eyes to figure out, like, what I'm going to do. And then a naked Eddie just picking up Roland's big gun and this old ancient gun and firing it mm-hmm. and blowing people's heads off. It's just this cinematic bloodbath. I, I don't know if this will be in the movie and on screen, but if it does, the director's got some fun stuff to work with. Absolutely. Speaking of, of Eddie, just one last thing. Um, I'm a big fan of Lost, and I know the guys who created Lost are big Stephen King fans. Hmm. Do you think that Eddie Dean, the likable junkie, was the direct inspiration for the character of Charlie on Lost? Uh, I can see that. Yep. 
I think he's probably he could be a combination of Eddie with the good looking young junkie mm-hmm. and maybe even a combination of is it Larry Underwood in the stand who is the rock musician. Yep. I think like those two characters could definitely be uh inspirations for Eddie. I could see that. And I wouldn't be surprised if T V Tropes has a likable junkie uh character now, you know, because <laughs> even uh in Fear the Walking Dead there's a character Nick who is along those same lines, a junkie. And it's interesting because during the zombie apocalypse on that show, one of the characters gloms on to Nick, the lovable junkie, because he's like, oh, junkies know how to get through things. Like they're always able to find a way to get what they need. And and so they'll be perfect in the zombie apocalypse to help me out, which seems counterintuitive, but. Yeah, I, I don't know. If, if, I, if I were in a survival situation, I don't think I would seek out a junkie. I mean, that, that'd be the most desperate of desperate people. Yeah. I don't know. So the chapter ends with Eddie throwing his lot behind with Roland and coming back through the door. And, and that's where the chapter ends off. But I don't think that that's where we want to end off with our discussion, right? We've got a little bit more to talk about. Um, anything else in this chapter that stuck out for you, Jay? <laughs> yeah, there were a few errors that King made. One was uh, early in the book, Balazar's first name is written as Emilio that one time, and then every other time, including a few shortened nicknames, it's listed as Enrico. <laughs> so I got to just figure that this was an editing thing that you know just got missed. But the fact that it's in this, I don't know, fourth, fifth edition book that I'm reading, it's still in there. That's something that could so easily be fixed. <laughs> and, you know, is it Emilio or Enrico? And... Another thing is like, which direction is Roland going on the beach? He says over and over again, I'm going north. He says over and over again, he is at the Western Sea. If you are facing west and you want to go north, the sea will be on your left. North will be, you know, up the coast and the mountains in Roland's case will be to his right. And there are multiple occasions not just once, but multiple occasions where that lines up and then multiple occasions where the opposite is described. So yeah, what's going on there? That one stuck out for me right away. Um, when I read this before you and I had talked about it, I'm like, whoa, 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 what, what's going on here? And my second read, I was trying to figure out like, where is it? But you know, like you said, a page or two later, he gets it right in, in, in the yeah. directions. Because when he's talking about how when when Roland first gets to the door and he sort of circles around the door to figure out does the door exist or doesn't it exist, he gets that right because he's like, oh, I'm looking west and I see this, I see the ocean on the other side of the uh, of the yep. door, and it, it all works out right. But in that one paragraph where he talks about that, and so the easiest thing to think is, hey, Stephen King grew up in Maine. On his side of the coast, the ocean is on. You know, if he was walking north, the ocean would be on his right and the land would be on his left. I mean, that's sort of the, I mean, Stephen King's, a, I think we could agree, probably a smart guy. He should understand that things work different on the other coast. Um, I was curious enough to see like, hey, what do other people think of sort of this error? And there is some nice uh, Marvel no prize, trying to win a Marvel no prize, trying to work their way through this. Uh, Some of them are spoiler inducing. But others of them are, hey, this just shows how the Dark Tower is the nexus of 
time and space and things are acting weird and <laughs> that's it. I don't buy that. I think it's I don't buy that either. It it seems odd that it didn't get corrected though. So I don't know if there's more to it. Um one guy said it's all explained in the later books. You'll understand, but I'm not buying it. Yeah. <laughs> if you're like on the California Pacific coast and someone says walk north, the ocean will be on your left. And the mountains will be on your right. Yep. It's just that simple and it's never going to change. Nope. And it would be different, but there's maps and like people have created maps and shown where things are in relation in, in Roland's world. And maybe it's his feverish brain that's confused him and he's hallucinating. Who knows? But yeah. It could be. I say, yeah, I mean, the- error, fact yeah. check, fake news. <laughs> and there was like the during the gunfight with uh, Andalini on the beach. When Roland shoots his gun and the gun explodes and rips off half of Andalini's hand and most of his face, which, by the way, didn't bother me for some reason. I don't know. (laughs) Lose a couple fingers. Jay's haunted for life. Yeah. Gun blowing up in a mobster's face. Eh, It happens. Yeah. It's part of the job. He knew the risks. But like... The way it's described up until the point the trigger gets pulled or the gun explodes, it's like Roland is shooting perpendicular to Andalini, like he's shooting the side of his gun. But when Roland describes what happened to Eddie, it sounds like he shot down the barrel of Andalini's gun. So I, I don't know, this might have just been a an imagination glitch or something when King was picturing this in his head. But Yeah, or I wondered if when he was saying where he shot... Maybe he was saying he shot the cylinder of the gun itself and it exploded, but I don't know why it would matter that he was shooting at the same time. Like that's what right. that's what doesn't make sense, and I think that that's where there's an error. Um, some people have pointed out that King doesn't have a you know a military tactician's understanding of guns and how they always work, so that could be part of it. I, I I'm sort of with you. It it's not clear there. Uh, I mean, when Roland explains it, part of that explanation is I've seen this happen once or twice before in in battle. Yeah. Like, so it seems like it's a super rare thing, which is you know King's way of saying how cool was that, guys? Right. You know, Roland he is- shot right down the barrel, one in a million shot. Roland's cool. <laughs> yeah. And the last thing I just wanted to to touch on was what is with these supposed Italian that these mobsters are speaking? Like Supposed Italian? Are you saying that those <laughs> words that I skipped over because I don't understand Italian aren't real, Jay? Uh, they're not. <laughs> they are not Italian. I, I don't speak Italian, so I can't claim that as my own expertise. But I did grow up in a household where my mother, my aunt, and both of my grandparents spoke Italian around me, and I studied some Italian just to lay the groundwork. I recognize Italian when I see it, and th- these were not Italian words, and I couldn't figure out who this Balazar is supposed to be. First of all, Balazar is not an Italian last name. <laughs> now, maybe because he's Sicilian, he or because he, maybe he changed his name when he emigrated into the country, I'll let that slide. But when he has that little conversation with with Chimi, it's like they're not speaking Italian. They're not. They're maybe speaking some Latin. I think there's some Spanish in there, and they have all these little words in there that I actually spent some time researching these. Every word that I looked up on Google, the only result was was a reference to this book. <laughs> and my mother is uh, is friends with a. Um, 
a guy who is off the boat from Sicily. And I thought, maybe he knows. So I asked him, can you help me translate this? What is even the slang or something? And he said, I don't recognize a single word of that nonsense. I don't know what it is. And so I, I'm like, why would Stephen King spend all this energy establishing that Balazar is second generation Italian from Sicily? I'm second generation Italian. Um, my family's not from Sicily, but they're my grandma's from Southern Italy, so it's pretty close. And like, why wouldn't he just ask somebody who speaks Italian to help him with this dialogue? Right. It really, you know, I guess different people have things that knock them out of a movie or knock them out of a book. You know, it's like, oh, uh, my suspension of disbelief just got rocked here. <laughs> and for me, it was like, these guys wouldn't say these words. They just wouldn't. It just really struck me as like King dropping the ball. Well, to be fair, Stephen King's from Maine. How many Italians are actually in Maine? And I can say that because as of right now, we don't have any listeners in Maine. So I, yeah. I can make gross generalizations about an entire state. And yeah. Safe. By the way, what's the deal with that? How could there not be a single Stephen King fan in Maine who likes Gunslinger enough to search for and stumble upon our podcast? Yeah. Not one. <laughs> I feel like I've let Stephen King down somehow by not having any listeners in Maine. So for any of you listeners who know anyone in Maine, recommend our podcast to them. Two guys to the darktowercame.com. Thanks, Sean. Plug away. (laughs) Any other noticeable errors? No, that's it. I I think I've ragged on on Stephen King long enough in this episode. It's fun, though. We do Mm -hmm. it because we love. Yes. Now this is this is the time in the internet age where now everyone's going to point out all the errors you and I made during this episode. Uh huh. At, well. at two guys dark tower on Twitter or Facebook. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Tell me how uh, how my second generation Italian uh, means nothing, and I should just <laughs> leave Stephen King alone. So since we did a little bit of ragging on King, can we do a couple of positive notes on King? Sure. The whole idea of when Roland is in Eddie's mind and he is sort of picking up some of the information and he's sort of guessing what all of that means. Um, Mm -hmm. There's nothing I like better that makes me laugh more than when Roland talks about the priestly ritual of clearing the customs. (laughs) (laughs) I think that that's just great as Roland is like, I know that there is this you will have to do the clearing of the customs and this is how <laughs> yeah. we, this is how we'll do it. I think that that's just a great turn of phrase and just makes that part very memorable to me. Yeah, I, I think all of the uh the Rolandisms that uh, King invents are are just endlessly entertaining to me like Tudorfish and Aston and Pizza. Like he <laughs> he can't say like random words and they're just they're just kind of cute. Like you know, Roland's this like super hard ass you know, like dangerous guy. He's a killer. He's, you know, he sacrifices young boys to serve his quest. <laughs> but damn it, if I don't love him a little bit because he says tutor fish. And then when he drinks the Pepsi, sweet, sweet. <laughs> <laughs> I also like um, when they start conversing in Eddie's head and Eddie knows now that, you know, it's Roland in there. And Roland in his way is trying to communicate, you know, Eddie's like, I don't understand what you. Me and Roland's like, I mean, if you show a yellow gut, you will go far toward getting your precious brother killed. Is that what you want? All right, I'll be cool. It may not sound that way, but I'll be cool. Roland is, <laughs> is that what you call it? All right, then. Yes. 
be cool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then later on, he tells him to be cool. And it's just that sort of, he's picked up the slang right away. <laughs> All right. Anything else that you want to cover in the prisoner section, Jay? Uh, just one last thing. The the character of uh, Chimi has one of my favorite lines of the whole Dark Tower series. And it's when uh, he's thinking about his wife, whom he hates, and he thinks about a quote that I think his like father or, or his priest told him or something. And he says, God pisses down the back of your neck every day, but only drowns you once. <laughs> I just like that. That's like this guy's life mantra. Yep. You know, it's like, eh, yeah, every day sucks, but it only gets really bad one time. That's true. Mm-hmm. Death comes for everyone eventually. I think Roland says that in this uh, in this chapter as well, but not yep. quite as uh, poetic as uh, Chimi does. That's right. Uh, all right. So that was good. I hope everyone else enjoyed The Prisoner as much as we did. Um, we are very happy, Jay and I, to be getting all sorts of feedback from our listeners. Yeah, super awesome. You know, Jay and I sort of started this podcast on a whim a few months ago. We've had the idea for for a little bit, and we weren't sure what the Venn diagram was of people who liked Stephen King, The Dark Tower, and podcasts, and would want to listen to the two of us talk. But it turns out there are many of you out there, and we really appreciate you listening and offering your feedback. Um, I know on Twitter at two guys dark tower we've been getting a lot of followers and folks who have been um getting back to us i know some of the folks that have been extremely active are gaunt arc seemingly cursed lady gunslinger lisa medley and sarah elms um sarah actually jay uh wondered why i mentioned walla walla washington a few episodes back Um, yeah that was interesting (laughs) And, you know, for me, I, I grew up in Ohio and I always thought it was funny because I think in Bugs Bunny cartoons, they would mention Walla Walla mm-hmm. Washington as sort of something with a, a funny name that was far away. And from Ohio, Walla Walla Washington is far away. So uh, that's why I dropped the reference that it was just sort of a Bugs Bunny and it's a cool little name. Yeah, it's like left turn at Albuquerque and Walla Walla Washington, you know? Yeah, it, it's all <laughs> out there. So Jay and I are of an age where... Much of the culture that we learned was from Looney Tunes cartoons. So, <laughs> exactly. So, Sarah, thanks for uh, your tweet on that. Um, we've we've gotten, like I said, great feedback and great reviews, and we're glad people are discovering this. Yeah, in fact, we uh, we had one listener, Jeremy S. G., also known as Slaygoth, sent in a recording of his comments uh, to a recent episode. Thought we'd play that on the air for you now. Hey, what's up? Two guys, Dark Tower podcast. Uh, been listening since you started it. I love it. There's a couple of other good ones out there, and it's very exciting uh, for me. As uh, I'm 42, uh, read the first book when I was 13, so I had to follow that journey all through the <laughs> waiting for each book, and you know it was a lifelong thing for me. It was. It ended when I was 31, and it was bittersweet. But uh, uh, anyway. Um, uh, I just wanted to let you know, like, I know you're not like paying attention much to the to the film stuff. Just so you understand, the movie is being touted as a sequel to the books, so things are different. But they've pulled a lot from all of the books, 
And, you know, the hope is that it's successful and that they get to make another one. But what has been greenlit and is going to happen, probably on Netflix, because the company that, I guess, bought the rights to do it are the same guys that do um, the uh, Kevin Spacey show that's on Netflix about politics or whatever. They hold the key now, so that's really awesome. And they're going to do basically Wizard and Glass. Idris Elba has signed on, and as well as the the, guy, the kid playing Jake, to be in it. As so I'm assuming that at some point we're going to see some sort of campfire tale, telling of what has happened to him. But we're going to get that Wizard and Glass story of his youth. That's for sure. That's that's the real deal, you know. But that's what the film is. The film is like a sequel to the books. So it'll be there for new people to jump on and try and get involved in it. And I guess for the fans, it is a big ass nod to us. So, you know, it's it's interesting. It's scary. I saw the leaked trailer. I, I will say that I got got chills at, at a couple points, but they need to they need to already go ahead and and, and, and release that that new trailer. Anyway, guys, take care. This is Jeremy, aka Slay Goff. And uh, I'm listening, and I love your show. I think it's amazing. Well, thank you, Jeremy, for sending in that voicemail. I am more excited about the movie now that you've mentioned that to me. Um, I I think I had mentioned last time that I I, I wasn't leaning one way or the other, but uh, your excitement about the movie has gotten me excited. I still have not watched the bootleg trailer. I'm going to wait for the official clean trailer so as not to be... Uh, swayed by something that was unfinished but uh thanks again for sending in the link yeah thanks for sending that in jeremy it's great to hear uh the voice of one of our listeners it means a lot to us that uh, we're reaching people like you that are so excited about what we have to say that you feel like you gotta just send us a, a response immediately and uh i agree with sean i'm more excited about the movie now your enthusiasm is infectious and i did watch the bootleg trailer and i'm kind of sorry i did so I've been telling Sean not to watch it. <laughs> and I have taken Jay's advice and not watched it, but it's got to be coming soon, right? We're recording this at the beginning of February and the movie's happening in July. Yeah, this might be the first movie to ever come out before its trailer. <laughs> Interesting. The tower is the nexus of time and space. Uh, they'll make it work. If I'm walking north towards the trailer, it'll be on the south side of me or <laughs> yeah, something <laughs> like that. Yes. And thanks to all of you who are leaving reviews on iTunes from other podcasts I listen to. It's my understanding that reviews help people to find and discover the podcast. So if you are out there, I know the iTunes interface isn't the most wonderful thing to work with. But if there's a way that you could guide yourself through that Apple labyrinth to get to the review and click those five stars and then leave a short message. We would appreciate that. Yeah, it really does help a lot to help people discover our show. All right, another good episode, Jay. That will be all for this episode of Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came. Thank you, Jay. Thank you. Links to all of our contact information is available in the show notes for this episode. You can email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. You can also find us at Facebook at facebook.com slash twoguysdarktower. And our Twitter handle is at Two Guys Dark Tower. And again, as we mentioned earlier, if you like the show, please rate us on iTunes. So next episode, join us as we cover our continuing conversation on the drawing of the three, book two of the Dark Tower series. We will be reading the shuffle section. This is a shorter section of about 20 pages. So after our 150-page reading list for this episode, we're going to scale it back a little bit. And we'll have a great discussion there. For Jay Russo, I'm Sean McCurr. Thanks for listening.